the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Gleaser. Welcome back. Today we're talking to Betsy Hudson from McGuire Woods. Betsy is based not far from us in Washington, D.C., where she is a litigator. She maintains an active pro bono practice and has done some especially high-profile work representing survivors of human trafficking. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Betsy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about you. Share about your background, yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, things like that. Uh, So I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and then uh, went to college at UVA, Wahoo, and then uh, came up to D.C. and went to GW Law for law school. In terms of deciding to become a lawyer, it wasn't really a single moment or defining event or anything like that, but instead sort of a course of decisions and experiences that I had. Um, I guess a high school government teacher first planted the idea of law school in my head. Um, Gosh, what a significant influence educators are. Um, And then I found myself gravitating towards pre-law courses in college. And then I worked for a nonprofit legal organization after graduation where Um, I was surrounded by lawyers and had the chance to pick their brains about their careers and and learn from them. Um, And after working at uh, that organization for two years, uh, I decided to go to to law school. Did you think you benefited from taking time off from working as opposed to going straight through from college to law school? Yeah, absolutely. I had gotten that advice uh, when I was thinking about law school towards the end of college and immensely glad that I followed it. I think taking a break from academics is beneficial on multiple levels. One, I think just being in a professional environment where you learn basics about how to draft a professional email and how to interact in meetings and um, how to interact with colleagues and things like that um, is really helpful. Also, just the academic break, I think, before jumping back in. And for me personally, I was pretty sure, but not 100% sure that I wanted to go to law school. And it's a you know big commitment in terms of time and finances. So um, to be really sure instead of just kind of sure uh, heading into law school uh, was, was a really good idea. And I came in ready to go and had a few years of experience and felt like I could talk about things just besides courses when I got to the point of interviewing and and looking at jobs after law school. How was your experience at GW? Was it a good law school experience for you? It was great. It was really different, I think, than undergrad. I mean, UVA, the uh, grounds is really centered around the town, and GW is much more of a city school. So um, it was an adjustment from that perspective. But I think that um, going to law school in D.C., also offers such a wide range of opportunities to intern and volunteer and things like that with organizations that you just wouldn't get in any other city. Um, so I really took advantage of that and and did internships just about every semester uh, to try to get a feel for you know what I wanted to do after law school. That's great. I really think the development in legal education of internships, externships, experiential education has been a great advancement, both in terms of developing practice-ready lawyers and helping people really figure out what it is they want to do and how they want to spend their professional lives. So, Absolutely. 
So tell us a little bit about how you got to McGuire Woods. So initially, I went into law school after working for this nonprofit, certain that I would graduate and then go straight into public service and never look back. And um, honestly, probably was a bit judgmental about (laughs) going into big law and folks that wanted to do that. Um, But I worked at a law firm in between my second and third year, again, taking advice from a practitioner saying, you should just try it, give it a try, even if you think you're you know, don't want to go into this area, here's a great opportunity to make sure that you don't. And I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it, just the intellectual rigor and the variety of cases and and things like that. So between that experience at the law firm and then a clerkship after law school and some additional advice from other practitioners regarding how I could learn how to be a good good litigator at a firm, I uh, switched gears a bit and started interviewing at law firms and was really drawn to the team of attorneys I interviewed with at McGuire Woods in their DC office, just seemed like uh, a stellar team and really enjoyed chatting with the folks that I interviewed with. And I also thought it would be a good place to get some solid courtroom experience. It's a, it's a big firm, but the DC office isn't quite as large as some other firms in the area. And I had heard from others that, uh, you know, you don't spend your first three years doing document review and the firm actually gives you opportunities to go into court and interact with clients and all of the um, skills that I was hoping to develop and not have to wait five years to start to develop. So I joined the litigation practice and the DC office after clerking. So tell us a little bit more about your litigation practice, what you focus on, your areas of expertise, what you do, and what attracted you to litigation? So I've done a bit of everything, um, employment litigation, white collar litigation, some government contracts litigation, but um, formally in the firm business and securities litigation group. So that translates to mainly um, commercial litigation, handling contract and tort cases in D.C., Virginia, New York, a few other places around the country, but really um, focusing on Virginia and D.C., I enjoy it. I When I first started, I didn't want to be pinned down to a particular practice group or specialty and um, have really enjoyed the opportunity to try out different types of cases, different types of industries and things like that, and have also really enjoyed being in the courtroom and just getting that um, experience on my feet. You also maintain an active and award-winning pro bono caseload. We talked about this a little bit earlier when we were talking about your career interests and becoming a lawyer, but what do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? Gosh, um, well, I remember hearing about this issue of human trafficking for the first time when I was in college, and it really just stopped me in my tracks. Um, Most of the classes that I were taking at the time were centered on the civil rights movement and Dr. King or this idea of lived theology and ethics with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so like any college student, I was curious and fired up and wanted to change the world and was really, you know, excited about what I was learning. And then I heard about this crisis of human trafficking in the U.S. and around the globe and I just remember thinking, how can this still exist? I mean, how how is this happening and people aren't talking about it? And just really connected with the issue, I became 
active in a number of student and nonprofit organizations that were focused on anti-trafficking efforts and then sort of continued down that path after graduating from colleges. And then to sort of connect that with uh, pro bono practice at a law firm, when I was interviewing at firms, my resume was just about 100% public interest jobs, public interest activities, things like that. I got a ton of questions, uh, fairly so, that were directly or indirectly asking, are you sure you're in the right spot? Why do you want to be at a firm? But uh, at McGuire Woods, there's one partner, um, not just one, but one in particular, my mind stands out, who interviewed me. And he was actually excited by all of the anti-trafficking experience that I had on my resume. Um, and we talked about it during well, just about my entire interview. And he said that he wanted to start an active pro bono practice at the firm for trafficking survivors. And that's a big part of the reason why I came to McGuire Woods. I knew that even though I uh, switched gears a bit and wanted to go into a firm, I uh, it's never really a question that I wouldn't continue to do pro bono work. And so to find a partner who could be a good teammate and advocate in that um, really attracted me to the firm and turned out to make a huge difference in building this pro bono practice at the firm. Thank you. Um, before we deep dive into your cases and your representations, I think it will be helpful to step back and provide some background for listeners who may not be very familiar with human trafficking in terms of context and explaining what it is we're talking about. And you actually wrote a very helpful piece called The Cult Next Door, debunking five misconceptions about human trafficking that we'll link to and we'll make available. It's it's really an informative piece. So can you first, before we talk through the five factors, just um, set the stage for what, what are we talking about? What is human trafficking? So on a very basic level to start out, human trafficking is is a crime. It involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of either labor or commercial sex act. Important to note that if the victim is a minor, there's no need to prove the elements of force, fraud, and coercion. Um, In 2000, uh, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, or the TVPA, was passed, and that was really the first comprehensive law to address trafficking in persons. Of course, the problem existed before that, but it wasn't codified into law, and these elements of force, fraud, and coercion spelled out uh, until then, and it's been reauthorized in 2003, 2005, 2008, and 2013 since then. It's really a widespread crisis. Its uh, victims include men, women, children, uh, U.S. citizens, foreign nationals, legal permanent residents, undocumented immigrants, and a lot of different industries. Um, it broadly, I think, can be broken down into labor trafficking and sex trafficking. Of course, there's cases where both exist, but in terms of I- industries, includes um, domestic work agriculture, restaurants, uh, beauty salons, traveling sales crews. I could uh, list uh, many other industries and and examples. Uh, It's really a a widespread issue. And then in terms of numbers, it's difficult, I think, due to the underreported nature of human trafficking and the covert nature of the crime to really know the scope of the problem. I think years ago, 
there's a man named Kevin Bales who came out with an early estimate of 27 million people worldwide. I think the more recent estimate um, from an organization called the Human Trafficking Institute is just under 25 million victims. Also, it's important to note that this is really an economic crime. Uh, the profits that, again, from the Human Trafficking Institute estimates $150 billion a year from, from trafficking across, across the world. So the scope of the problem is huge, and it intersects with a lot of different industries and uh, countries and, and people. Let's debunk some myths. So one misconception that you identify is that human trafficking equals smuggling. Right, uh, which is not true. Uh, The crime of human trafficking encompasses a lot of different actions, including recruiting, harboring, transporting, providing, or obtaining, soliciting, patronizing, or advertising. The last three are a bit more specific to sex trafficking. But there's nothing about crossing state lines or transporting across state lines. Uh, Transportation is only one of the listed actions uh, to constitute the crime of human trafficking. So I think this is one area where the language of trafficking versus modern day slavery, the trafficking language can sometimes be a bit unhelpful because it carries this connotation of transportation across state lines. Uh, because it's used in other t- contexts like drug trafficking. Uh, but important to note that human trafficking and smuggling are two separate and distinct crimes, and human trafficking does not require transport or movement across state lines. Of course, traffickers will often use constant movement and transportation as a means of controlling their victims because it you know, provides less stability and, uh, and routes and it helps them to not be detected and things like that. But legally speaking, it's not a required element of the crime. So a second myth is that sex trafficking of young girls is the only form of human trafficking. Right. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but the talking about sort of the widespread nature of this problem um, Sex trafficking of young girls is certainly a component of human trafficking, but um, men, women, and children, boys and girls, are all victims of trafficking. Um, And also, sex trafficking is not the only type of trafficking. Labor trafficking cases don't often capture the attention of law enforcement or lawyers or the public in the same way that sex trafficking does, but it's important to note that labor trafficking comprises a large percentage of human trafficking in the U.S. and beyond, uh, and that it's certainly part of human trafficking and, and not something to overlook. The third myth that you identify is that traffickers always hold their victims in locks and chains. Right. So there's this, I think, kind of Hollywood version of trafficking that uh, portrays trafficking victims, often young girls, huddled in the corner, uh, locked up, looking scared, uh, behind bars or in chains. Certainly this can can exist and it's horrific and not trying to downplay that, but images like this um, and movies like uh, the movie Taken are, I think, helpful to increase public awareness, uh, but perpetuate this myth that trafficking equals 
locks, chains, physical force. Um, a lot of recent rhetoric about victims being tied up or locked up only perpetuates this myth and is just really unhelpful. Um, it's important to note that one, this isn't legally required uh, to prove a uh, count for human trafficking. Physical force isn't, isn't one of the elements that force fraud and coercion can include psychological and emotional abuse and threats. And the reality is that that can be just as powerful as uh, a chain or a rope or some sort of physical restraint. Of course, it's a bit more difficult and nuanced to capture in an ad or a soundbite, but I do think that public awareness is increasing on this issue um, in ads and campaigns and also legal precedent is is recognizing this reality of uh, psychological and emotional coercion uh, and not just the physical coercion. The fourth myth we talked a little bit about already, and that is all trafficking victims are undocumented immigrants. So that, again, is not true that trafficking can involve U.S. citizens. It can involve legal permanent residents, foreign nationals, guest workers who might be on valid visas here uh, or undocumented immigrants. And all of these individuals are protected under the federal trafficking statute. I think that you know, a lot of times people use this idea of, well, that could be your daughter or your son or your niece to pull people into the idea and try to help them identify with the issue, uh, whether that's trafficking or something else. I think it certainly pulls on heartstrings and it's helpful to encourage people to identify with a problem on a personal level that might not be directly personally affecting them. But I wish that we could collectively have that same response just by, you know, knowing that another human being, whether or not that human being is your daughter or son or uh, nephew was treated in, in a certain way, uh, just kind of on these broad principles of a shared common humanity and equal value of all people. That goes a little bit beyond that myth, but I think that concept is kind of re related. Absolutely. And the last myth that you identified is trafficking victims are immediately and consistently receptive to rescue. That is usually not the case um, where trafficking victims, you know, see the police or social worker who, or whoever perhaps on a raid and run into their arms and leave their traffickers behind forever. It's um, a lot more nuanced and difficult than that, um, a bit because of the psychological and emotional coercion that we were talking about earlier. Um, so the trafficking victims experience with their traffickers can actually make them more inclined to distrust people that uh, we would view in positions of power. Um, when I was at, working at the nonprofit IJM, the clients often told us that they were trained either by their traffickers or just by life experience to run away from the police instead of running to the police for help, um, which I think, you know, illustrates this, this myth. Um, it's, again, important to tease out some of the nuances and complexities of each person's narrative. And I think once you tell the story, whether that's to a judge or a jury or a peer, um, it starts to sort of sink in. So, you know, for example, if there's a case where the trafficker allows the trafficking victim to 
walk to the store to buy food for the house, whether it's a victim of sex trafficking or labor trafficking uh, with domestic servitude. I think people would often have the first, their first inclination would be to say, well, gosh, if she can walk outside of the house and down to the store, why didn't she just run away? Why didn't she stop and tell a neighbor? Why didn't she tell the store clerk? Um, but then I think if you start to look at the details of uh, a case like this, so factors like she didn't have any money, she doesn't speak English, she doesn't have any food, her traffickers have threatened her and her children if she leaves, um, she doesn't have her paperwork, she's afraid of being de deported. I mean, any number of those factors alone or taken together, I think, help explain why, one, trafficking victims don't always um, run away when they have the chance, but then also why they aren't always immediately receptive to this idea of rescue uh, in the way that we might have seen in, in movies or stories. Um, if, if someone has been in a trafficking situation for years and years and years, there's intense bonds of uh, psychological coercion. And then uh, some of the factors that I just mentioned in this, you know, hypothetical as well, will uh, often keep them from leaving or um, if there is an opportunity for rescue, they might be hesitant and, and distrustful at first. Thank you for that. I, th I think the education you provided helps us better understand what we're going to talk about next. So thank sure. you again. So now um, I'd really like to hear about Kendra Ross, her stolen childhood, and um, your relationship. Kendra, Kendra Ross, I met her at an aftercare shelter for human trafficking survivors. And Kendra's story is really an incredible one. She has been through a lot, but um, is one of the most resilient, strong young women that, that I've met. Um, her story came out over the course of several years of meeting with her, um, which sort of ties in with, with the last point. It took a long time to build trust with Kendra. She had never met lawyers before and had already told her story a few times. And I think there's some re-victimization that happens after having to repeat uh, stories of trauma and abuse and, and things like that. Um, I think it was helpful that I was about the same age as her and perhaps a, a bit less intimidating than what she had uh, conjured up in her mind of an image of a lawyer. So I met with her for the course of a few years and learned her story, which, uh, summarizing is from the age of about two to 21. She was a victim of human trafficking at the hands of a man named Royal Jenkins and his cult, which has gone by several names, uh, started with the United Nation of Islam, uh, not the same thing as the Nation of Islam, an extremist offshoot of that group. They later changed their name to the Value Creators and more recently have changed their name to the Promise Keepers. So for her childhood, as you, as you mentioned, uh, she was shipped from Kansas to New Jersey, to Ohio, to Georgia, to New York, um, to work in the cult businesses and restaurants and homes. Sometimes she was shipped in the back of a delivery truck and given one or two days notice that she was leaving and often separated from her mother and her sister um, and really had no choice in where she would go or where she would work. The cult has an extreme system of control in terms of controlling its members' diets, 
education, Kendra was taken out of school at the age of level of fifth grade. Um, she wasn't given any medical attention apart from the cult's own doctors. The cult uh, operates kind of a system of extremely controlled courtship, which often leads to polygamous relationships. And Kendra was um, in a marriage, not a legally recognized marriage, but she was in a uh, cult-sanctioned marriage while she was a member of the cult. Um, she finally escaped at the age of 21 um, and bounced around between a few different shelters and thankfully landed at this specialized shelter for human trafficking survivors. She is now um, amazingly working and studying. She wants to be a social worker or maybe a lawyer but she still obviously struggles a lot. I mean, she's been diagnosed with PTSD and still dealing with the trauma of uh, what happened to her through the course of, of her childhood. And how, what's been your involvement in her in her life and uh, her story? When I when we were meeting over the course of a couple of years, um, we had engaged this. We, we meaning McGuire Woods had engaged this aftercare shelter as a pro bono client. And we're meeting with some of the women who were staying there and as an option, in addition to the aftercare shelter, offering them, um, you know, things like education and job opportunities and counseling. Uh, we met with some of these women and offered the option of uh, pro bono legal services. So in one case, it was helping a woman file for divorce against uh, her former husband, who was her trafficker at the time. Um, other interests are more basic things like clearing your credit score or helping apply, um, helping fill out an application for a T visa, a trafficking visa. Um, but in Kendra's case, when I when we met with her, it was clear from the beginning that she was interested in something on a much bigger scale and really was interested in this idea quite simply to get the cult to stop operating and stop treating people like this and wanted to have the sense of justice done and wanted the story to be brought to light. Um, and so we started exploring the idea of filing a civil lawsuit on her behalf focused on these claims for human trafficking. And over the course of a couple years, wanted to make sure that she was in a good place emotionally and psychologically to be able to do that and explaining to her that she might need to go back to Kansas City and testify and see these people again. And I wanted to make sure that she was ready for that. And um, she kept insisting that she was and, and certainly proved that she was. So we filed a complaint against Royal Jenkins and the uh, cult entities alleging claims for human trafficking, both on the federal level and then on all the states where she was trafficked, in addition to various overtime and minimum wage violations, a few other tort claims, and also uh, a RICO claim, uh, the racketeering claim, claiming that the cult is an organized criminal enterprise. And that was important because the, that specific statute allows for uh, trouble damages. So we wanted to make sure to include that in the complaint. So we filed filed that complaint. Um, Royal Jenkins uh, never really responded until after his deadline to respond. So we filed a motion for default. 
then he resp responded after that. I'll try not to bore you with a lot of the legalese, but there was some back and forth um, with legal filings um, that he or someone else made, but the court did, um, did end up having us out for a hearing where we presented evidence about uh, Kendra's claims and supported our claims for damages with printouts from the Department of Justice uh, with the prevailing wage rates for each of the jobs that she worked and the places that she worked. We had her therapist come out and testify to support her claims for emotional uh, damages and punitive damages. Um, and the, the court held that hearing and then several months later granted her uh, a judgment just about um, $8 million and um, really pleased with that result. It was just about everything that we asked for. Um, he didn't quite grant the full amount of punitive damages that we asked for, but apart from that, um, just about 100%. I think more important than the uh, dollar figure, which is certainly significant um, at the hearing, he walked down from the bench after we had presented all of our evidence and all the testimony and came down and he shook Kendra's hand and he just said, it's been such a privilege to meet you. Um, and then he he talked about how as a judge, oftentimes he wishes that he could roll back the clock and prevent things like this from happening. But of course you can't do that, but in a small way, giving her this judgment will, you know, be a small measure of justice to try to send the message that we uh, don't don't tolerate behavior like this. And I think that was particularly meaningful for her. And then for that opinion to be published more broadly and send that message really accomplished a lot of the things that she was looking for when she first came to meet with us in terms of uh, putting this out in the light and exposing the cult for what it does and exposing this man for what he's doing. And I think encouraging others who are still in the cult to uh, to leave and to send this message that there is there is hope and that um, they shouldn't be treated like this. And she's just incredibly strong for being willing to stand up and send that message and take all of the risks that are associated with it. So Sometimes our pro bono clients are not well treated by the justice system, but I feel like this mm -hmm. judge uh, was the opposite of that. <laughs> Did the experience make um, a lasting impression on you and on Kendra? And and what were the um, other benefits of, of the experience and what were the challenges? Sure, I, there's a lot. Um, I think in terms of the judicial system, it really restored Kendra's faith, I think, in not just the judicial system, but what her experience has been living in this country up to this point, and to have someone stand up for her and um, hear her story and just affirm that the way she was treated was not okay, um, and then to award monetary damages that reflect that sends a really powerful message um, she was particularly concerned and understandably so about testifying in court. Um, I mean, anyone would, would be nervous about that, um, but she was particularly nervous about that. She had to go back to Kansas City, which is where the headquarters of this cult is. And I remember, you know, driving from the airport to our hotel to the courtroom. She passed by numerous locations and street names and things like that that were just triggering for her. Um, 
and caused her to have flashbacks. And she was nervous that that might happen in the courtroom. Um, and it, it did a bit, but I think that that's normal and showed the judge the extent of her trauma um, and the fact that she could kind of recollect herself and keep going um, and tell her story on the stand, I think was a really empowering thing um, to be able to do that which was a, just a neat shift to watch because I think it was probably the number one thing that she was nervous about. And afterwards, I think it was turned out to be one of the most empowering experiences for her to just take the stand. Um, and then for me, just to get to know her has just uh, has been incredible. Um, I mean, I, I think I mentioned this, but in the beginning, we I felt like we were almost trying to talk her out of filing a lawsuit and saying, this is going to be really difficult, you know, you're going to have to probably testify and they might push back and you might have to see them again. And this, you know, this could trigger a lot of things. And she was consistently sending the message that she was ready and she understood the risks and she wanted to do that. Um, so I think just to watch her walk through that and walk through it with her was an incredible experience for me. Um, we also had an incredible, incredible team from McGuire Woods work on the case and uh, really enjoyed working with each and every one of the lawyers who were on the team to see them, you know, committed to this pro bono case and put in far more hours than the uh, minimum requirement and to care about her as a person and to just be engaged in the work for all the right reasons. It makes all the difference when you've got a good team to work on a really tough matter with. So uh, I certainly enjoyed that aspect of it as well. What is the status of any efforts to collect on the judgment? So that's where all of our focus is now. In fact, the day that the judgment came down, May 23rd, 2018, the defendant, the Colts, organized a new entity called the Promise Keepers and began transferring their bank accounts, their properties, their assets to, uh, to this new entity in an effort to obviously avoid the judgment, uh, avoid paying the judgment to Kendra. So we've actually filed a new lawsuit alleging uh, claims for fraudulent transfer and some some related claims against this new entity, the Promise Keepers. Um, we filed the complaint. We were able to obtain a preliminary injunction and most recently filed a motion for default judgment uh, in support of the claims that we have in our complaint. We're waiting for the court to respond to that. We have been able to collect um, a bit and have identified properties across the countries that um, that this cult owns. In addition to bank accounts, uh, they certainly are not making it easy, but we have a team that uh, is committed to to trying to collect on this from Ken for Kendra, um, and we are we're working hard on it. I think one other thing in that regard is that at the outset we really try to set expectations for Kendra and said, you know, there's not, there's a possibility that you might not, you know, we're going to ask for a lot of money, but there's a possibility that a, you won't, won't see it or that they might not have it or that something will happen in the case and you won't get it. And from the beginning, she, she said, you know, the money would obviously be nice. I'm trying to go to school and get my life back on course, but it's not, it's not really about the money for me. It's more about, sending this message and bringing to light things that need to be brought to light. So um, she has been incredibly patient throughout this process, whereas I think a lot of people not as familiar with the 
legal system and the difficulties in collecting on a judgment might not be, but but she really has been great in that regard. Those are great points. So there are a lot of ups and downs, <laughs> right, in sort of the representation uh, of longstanding, the merits, the damages, the collection. How do you... Um, keep your chin up right? <laughs> and not get discouraged and think, oh, it's one thing after another. And now they've gone and done it again. So what should be easy is going to be difficult. What keeps you going? Gosh, um, yeah, that's a good question. And I mean, the real answer is that it's, it is hard doing this work. And I think, you know, this is just one of my cases. And there are people out there, whether um, in nonprofits or in the government where this is 100% of the work that they do. Um, the nonprofit I worked for before going to law school, that was the case. And I think they set a really, really good example of self-care, um, you know, things like making time for exercise and getting enough sleep and talking to people about it, not trying to do it alone. I mean, some of these things sound cliche, but they are absolutely true. Running clears my head. Um, it's really helpful for me. I also really appreciate working on a team. There are a couple times uh, of crisis on this case where I knew that I could call two or three people and, um, you know, not be necessarily put together and say, here's the situation. I have this solution. But to say, oh my gosh, here's what's going on. I have no idea how to handle this. And um, they were willing to walk, walk beside me with all of it and to kind of enter into that messiness and uncertainty. So, you know, doing it with a team, I think really makes all the difference. In addition to the other um, self-care things that, that um, are also hugely important. For people who are listening and thinking, wow, you know, I am so moved by this. I want to get involved. I've, I've, I've figured out my next pro bono project. <laughs> <laughs> what tips do you have on how they might get started? Sure. Uh, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, the first resource I would uh, point people to is Martina Vandenberg is just this rock star expert leader in anti-trafficking efforts and has been before people even coined the term human trafficking. And she is the founder and president of an organization called the Human Trafficking Legal Center. They do pro bono work on behalf of human trafficking survivors, and they partner with law firms um, in doing that work. And she was an invaluable resource for us for that case. Um, and her and her team sort of operate um, different partnerships with, uh, with law firms to handle pro bono cases, not all on the kind of scope and level of, uh, of this case, but there's a lot of people who are trying to apply for T visas, which has recently become um, extraordinarily more difficult um, or looking for other types of legal relief. So I think she's a good resource if anyone is specifically interested in uh, anti-trafficking efforts. But apart from that, I mean, we live in a city where there are a lot of um, fantastic nonprofits where um, that are doing excellent work and need firm uh, pro bono partnerships. I, I uh, think that there is a huge opportunity for that, and it just takes taking initiative and not waiting for 
you know, someone to sort of hold your hand and, and ask you, but to reach out and just just take that next step, whether it's sending an email or researching an issue um, and get the ball rolling. Great tips. And we're a big fan of Martina. So I'm especially glad that yeah. you brought her to uh, all of our attention. Um, you've observed that you've become a better litigator because of your work in the anti-human trafficking space. Could you elaborate a little bit about how your pro bono work has informed your billable practice? Sure, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think just on one basic level, it's fantastic experience. Um, I've had the chance to argue in federal court uh, numerous times, take depositions of cult members and leaders, which is a very unique experience. A lot of motions practice, whether it's substantive or discovery related, and leading a team, um, all of those experiences and uh, skill sets that I've gained from the case are immensely, immensely valuable. But I think on a broader level, as awareness about human trafficking is increasing, as I mentioned before, there are a ton of cross sections with the travel industry and financial sectors uh, because the problem is so widespread and so multifaceted. It turns out that a lot of firm clients are interested in this issue. So, um, you know, without naming specific clients, for example, you can imagine that a large airline might be interested in what they can do to fight human trafficking and make sure that they have appropriate training for their employees or appropriate um, advertisements or things like that on their uh, planes or trains or, or whatnot to help human trafficking survivors report or people who are suspecting human trafficking to report. Um, so that things like that or a bank that wants to train its employees to be able to flag indicators of human trafficking on uh, activity in its accounts. I mean, there are plenty of opportunities, I think, for firms to educate clients that they might work with in a very different, different arena on this issue of human trafficking and to educate them and to do sort of, you know, more of the preventative work and to uh, have a positive partnership in that way. And I have seen that play out with uh, several part, several of uh, the clients at McGuire Woods, and I will say that the firm has been extraordinarily supportive of that uh, as well. What do you say to busy law firm lawyers who just don't think they have the time to get involved in pro bono work? I get it. It's, it is busy and it is tough being a lawyer at a big law firm and Sometimes there might be seasons where you need to put things on hold if you're gearing up for trial or it's a busy season. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, big picture, you do make time for things that matter. You've got to take initiative to do it. Um, if you, you know, are nervous about starting something on your own, look to see if you can join a team of someone who's already uh, working on a clinic twice a year or, you know, doing kind of more of a discrete research project and, and build from there. I think I've, I've just always found that I operate best if I have a variety of other things on my calendar besides just billable work. Um, I think I'm a better worker if I do pro bono work or run in the morning um, or have things to talk about apart from just work. So I think having that, that broader perspective, sometimes the stress and demands of law firm life can really 
put blinders on you. And I've by no means mastered um, <laughs> mastered this, but I think it's important to zoom out and, and look at the bigger picture. Yeah, it's a journey. So we're all trying to balance. Yeah. <laughs> a related question <laughs> is, um, you know, it's summer, it's summer associate season. What advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? I guess um, some advice that I'll pass on was given to me, so it's certainly not original, but um, the advice to ask for opportunities when they come up. So if you um, prepare a deposition outline, ask to go sit on the deposition, um, things like that, don't be afraid to ask for those opportunities because I think that's where a lot of the learning occurs, where you get to go to the courtroom or go to the client meeting. And the worst that can happen is they say no and um, very likely they will be impressed that you asked and that you were taking initiative. And then I guess the other thing that I've found from my experience is if you come into law school and you come into your summer associate position, 100% convinced that you want to be an antitrust lawyer at a big firm, maybe don't get so locked into that idea so early on and be open to other possibilities and try to take on some cases and assignments that aren't just 100% in this area that that you think you want to practice because you might be surprised about uh, being interested in in other things and you won't get that opportunity unless you try it. And this is really the uh, optimal time to to give things like that a try. Being open-minded, good advice for lawyers and everyone else. (laughs) So Betsy, let's wind down with this. Who is your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one and why. Oh gosh, I might have to pick more than one. I've been really fortunate to have a number of mentors um, and other people in my life who have given me me good advice in terms of being a lawyer and, and broader than that. I guess, I mean, I've got to start with my parents. They're fortunate to have two really fantastic parents who modeled this idea of public service from the beginning. My mom's public school teacher, my dad a civilian uh, in the U.S. Army. And they didn't do it in this big, grandiose, um, you know, large scale service idea. But it was just kind of more in the everyday, um, it's kind of instilled in us that this is how, how, we are meant to live life, to bring meals to other people and to be available to help out. Um, so I really would, would credit them for that big picture idea. And then I think more specific to what we've been talking about, I would also circle back to Martina. I have been following her from the beginning and felt a bit like I was uh, just following her around and going to all the different panels and events that she spoke at. And having the opportunity to actually work with her on Kendra's case um, and get to know her better. I just think the world of her and think the world of what she's done with her skill set. I think that she's a brilliant lawyer and very compassionate human being and has taken those two things and created a really fantastic nonprofit that is uh, making a very real difference and the lives of many people. Um, So really grateful for Martina and I think that she's doing fantastic work. Well, we were very excited to have you join Martina on a panel at our conference. (laughs) (laughs) That was (laughs) quite a testament to your contributions. And Betsy, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure. Sure, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much to Betsy for making the time to be with us and for all the inspiring work she does. And thanks to producer John and Leah Calabro, a law student at Betsy's alma mater, George Washington University Law School, a nice coincidence, for her amazing research assistance. And thanks to all of our generous supporters who make this program and all of our work possible. You can learn more about the Law Firm Pro Bono Project and the Pro Bono Institute on the web. Find us at probonoinst.org. Hey listeners, we've gotten some great mail from you and we'd love even more. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to lawfirm at probonoinst.org. We might just read them on the air and send you some swag in return. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review, whether you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.